know, I don't think anyone enjoys the experience of being rejected or maybe cast aside. But what if perhaps an experience maybe of being rejected in our lives could actually result in something better coming about in the end? I can tell you firsthand that sometimes that process can actually take place in life. I'll give you one of the greatest examples. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was rejected by this world when he came. But that resulted in the salvation of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And something much better came out as the result of a rejection. And we see in the Bible this pattern a few different occasions. And this is another one of those occasions where rejection resulted in something much better coming out in the end. The hurtful rejection of people in this man's life, we're going to see, resulted in him discovering the loving embrace of Jesus and really a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think there are things to be learned from the passage we'll go through this morning. Remember the backdrop of what we're going to pick up looking at verses 1 through 7, excuse me, of chapter 9. Jesus has just performed another one of his good works, another one of his very kind acts to help a struggling person. He has just miraculously, remember, opened the eyes of a man who had been blind from birth. If you look with me just back in verse 4 there of chapter 9, Jesus said there, I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, verse 6, he spat on the ground, he made clay with a saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the man who was blind with the clay. And then he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So the man went and washed and he came back seeing. So this man's life, as we saw last time, was miraculously changed forever. His life was altered by what? The word of the Lord and by the power of God being experienced in his life. And as a result of that, Jesus granted him a brand new life, deliverance from his past. He had a transformed way of living. Now, the rest of chapter 9, as we'll see, is basically a record of the resulting response now to this miracle of Jesus that's just taken place in this man's life that has been changed. Having just come to this experience of a dramatic life change, of him being transformed, people become very curious now as to what took place. Pick up with me there in verse 8. It says, after the man came back seeing miraculously, therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? So the change in this man's life is so dramatic, it naturally causes a tremendous amount of curiosity now among onlookers who are shocked and kind of baffled by the tremendous life change that seems to be evident in this man's life as they observe that he is totally different that his condition is nothing like what it had once been it raises a tremendous amount of curiosity it's truly in their estimation like this guy's a a different person now you can sense kind of what's going on they're basically saying wait a minute could this possibly be could this possibly be the 
the same guy that we've known for all these years that was in this condition? And now could it be possible he's actually in a totally different condition? Is this really the same guy that's always been the way we've known him? And now he's totally different. Is this really possible? And and this is what they're thinking through. Well, verse 9 says that some said, this is he. It's him for real. Others said, oh, I don't know. Maybe he's just like him. I mean, nobody changes that dramatic. I mean, how could that possibly have happened? He's like a totally different person. And then the man spoke up, verse 9, saying, I'm he. It's me. Really, it's me. I know I'm different, but it is me. Still the same person. I've just been altered by Jesus. So notice, some were willing to accept the change happened. Others were skeptical and questioned the transformation. But the situation gave an opportunity for what? For this man whose life was altered to give testimony of what has now happened in his life. And this is a very beautiful picture here because that's often the experience of our lives when a person has an encounter with Jesus Christ they're changed right it's the same person but now they're a totally different person they're not what they've been from what people knew them to be before and they're in a totally different condition now they're the same individual but yet they seem like a radically different person and it grants a platform for somebody then to speak and say what Jesus has done in their lives Look as it goes on. It says, therefore, they said to them, said to him, excuse me, how were your eyes opened? In other words, if his life had been changed miraculously and life change is really possible and this man, Jesus, did this to you, then the people want to know, tell us, how did this happen? How does a person change like that? I mean, it's so evident that you are a different individual now. You're not the same person that we've known. How has this happened? What's taken place and what does it involve to experience the change that you did? And can I say again, is that not a fitting picture of when a person's life is changed by Jesus, what the testimony of a transformed life causes to come to pass, it creates curiosity. And what do people do? They start asking questions. How is it that you changed, man? I mean, you used to be this, you know, addicted individual to this lifestyle and all of a sudden now you're not addicted to that anymore or you used to be such a a a foul-mouthed selfish cruel person and 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 now you've become kind in your disposition and there's a peace about your life and a joy and a a kindness and and now you love people and, and and what's happened and and how does somebody change like that was it a program was it what took place how does it happen how does someone change in that way and and often the lord uses this as an opportunity for conversation to come about for us to be able to say listen let me tell you how it happened it wasn't a program it wasn't some special process it was a person a person that I encountered that has done something for me that I could never do to change myself. So he answers, verse 11, as they say, tell us how this happened, that your eyes were opened. And he said, a man, look what he says, called Jesus, made clay, and he anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight And then they said to him, where is he? And he said, honestly, I don't know. (laughs) He told me to go do this. I went and did it. A miracle happened. My life was changed as he said it would be. 
And I honestly, I don't know where he's at now. This is all I can tell you. I mean, he gives his testimony. Look at it there in verse 11. In one verse, there's that man's life testimony. He simply, if you would, recounts the very little bit he knows of what's happened in his life that's caused him to change. He shares a brief testimony, very short, of his life-changing experience with Jesus. He may not know much at this point, but he does share what he does know. He just simply shares his own life experience with Jesus and what has happened to bring such change in his life. And let me say, that's a really great place to start if you want to share with other people about the Lord. You just tell people what little bit you do know. Oh, I'm not a theologian. I don't know a whole lot about the Bible. I, I don't even have one Bible verse memorized yet. I, I, I don't even know. Listen, just tell people what you do know. Tell people what your life was like. Tell people that you had an experience with Jesus and just in your own words, in your own personal testimony, tell people your experience. That's what people relate to anyway. Most people per se don't want to hear some deep theological discourse where you sit there and they feel it. But people like to hear a story. That moves me. That's why the Bible tells us that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Because, see, the devil can't rob your testimony. The devil may say, oh, that's just somebody reiterating things they've been brainwashed. They're just telling you the four steps of the four spiritual laws. But you cannot deny a life change. You can't dispute when somebody knows your life's changed and it creates curiosity. And they say, what happened? Tell me, man, how did it happen? And you just say, listen, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to tell you. I could probably tell you in one verse. But here's what happened to me. And, and this is what Jesus has done in my life. And you just share that simple testimony of the power of how the Lord has changed your life and impacted your life. And it's an incredible way to just share spiritually with others that often is more impacting than a lot of other things that we think may help. Well, look what happens, verse 13. They don't quite know to know what to do with this man who the miracle has happened to. So it says, they brought him who was formerly blind I, I love that description there I have it underlined he was not blind he was formerly blind and, and, and that's like all of us we were formerly blind we were, we were formerly whatever we were. were that's not what we are anymore you're a new creation in Christ now if you've been saved don't live according to what you were live according to what you are you're someone who was that, but that's not what you are anymore. You're something new. You've been changed in Christ. So they brought him who was formerly blind <clears throat> to the Pharisees. And now it was the Sabbath, we're told, when Jesus had made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. So once again, he's asked and he said to them, well, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Therefore, some of the Pharisees, verse 16, said to him, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, but how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So not knowing what to do with this man who's been miraculously healed and changed now, it's evident that the power of a miracle has taken place in his life and they don't know what to do with them, the neighbors and the common folks. So they say, listen, let's take him to the religious people. 
Right? That's kind of what people do today. You know, you all of a sudden you start talking about the Lord and they don't know what to do with you. And well, well listen, let me take you to somebody religious. They, they, maybe they can give us some answers. So they take him now, the, the man who's been healed, to the Pharisees, perhaps thinking that maybe they could help a little further to understand. Now remember, the Pharisees were an elite religious sect in Israel of about 6,000 men. They were very devoted to the things of God in their estimation. They, they began by being committed to preserve the scriptures and observe the law of Moses. And they were very devout in their desire to observe the law of God to the strictest degree. But that rigid zeal and desire to be righteous ultimately led to them not just obeying the law of God itself, but then the creation of a lot of oral and written traditions, religious traditions, that they then added on to the very law of God, the word of God itself. What we often have referred to today as what's called the Mishnah or the Talmud. And these are basically additional writings, if you would, volumes of writings of extra rules and regulations, restrictions and rituals of exactly, listen, how God's word was to be observed. So you had the command, okay, that's God's command, but we need to describe what that command means. So we need to write commentaries upon commentaries. We need to create rule upon restriction, upon requirement and ritual, because just the command's not enough. We need to explain what that command means and the other 17 rules that you got to follow to just keep that command perfectly. And this is what the Pharisees began to do. Unfortunately, over time, they became nothing more than religious rule keepers who created layer upon layer of further rules and rituals in their strict religious lifestyle. And they had a lot of rules, but they lost all reality of relationship with God. And this is who they became as a religious group of leaders, most of which their rules were not even scriptural, but just things that they felt were holy. Legalistic rules and requirements and prohibitions that made them feel spiritual because they created these traditional rules and interpretations. One of the greatest areas they did this was in the area of the observation of the command of observing the Sabbath day. Remember, the Sabbath day was a day God created for the Jews to be a day of rest, to give them an opportunity to be refreshed and to be renewed, to be able to focus upon God and their families and worship. And they were to cease from all labor on the Sabbath day. This was a covenant God gave to the Jewish people specifically where they would cease from all labor. They were to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Of course, ultimately, it beautifully pictured Christ who is our Sabbath, who we then cease from all labors of religious effort to be righteous and we can rest in faith in what God has done for us. But this was a, a, a command God gave to the Jews that they were to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy to cease from work and labor. And the, the Jewish religious leaders created, unfortunately, an extensive list of volumes of prohibitions of what it meant to observe the Sabbath day. It was their traditional interpretation of what resting on the Sabbath day really meant. What did it mean? It's not just enough to say, what did it mean to cease from work and what was categorized as work? So there were multiple restrictions that they adhered to or else you violated. And rather, ultimately, because of the Pharisees, rather than the Sabbath day 
basically being a day that was a gift from God to rest and to be refreshed. Instead, they had made that day become a major burden that you actually had to work to observe it correctly. Do you understand? Ultimately, there were so many rules and rituals, it became difficult and exhausting to observe the Sabbath day because there were so many rules to remember and requirements to observe of what you could and could not do or else you violated their traditional interpretation of the Sabbath. That's the reason why here in our verses, when the Pharisees hear that Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath, uh-oh, that sounds like work to the Pharisees' estimation. That's the reason for the critical response there in verse 15. It says, when he tells what happened and that it had happened on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees said, therefore, this man, that is Jesus, there's no way that he could be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, it's not that he didn't keep the Sabbath. He didn't keep their traditional interpretation of what they felt adherence to the Sabbath day meant. See, if you read their writings, you find out that their traditional interpretation of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day, you could save someone's life if they were dying, but you could not heal someone on the Sabbath day. If their bone was broken, you couldn't set the bone on the Sabbath day because that was a form of work. So they just had to deal with the pain, and if it wasn't a life-saving measure, you could not help someone on the Sabbath day because that was labor and that was work. On the Sabbath day, you weren't allowed to spit. Now, what did Jesus do to heal this man? He spit, and then he made a, a, a consistency of mud and clay, and he put it on the man's eyes. Why couldn't you spit on the Sabbath day? Well, if you've ever spit before in dirt, when you spit, sometimes, depending upon how big your loogie is, it rolls in the dirt. That's plowing. Now you've created a furrow. What if someone plants seed? You've plowed on the Sabbath day and someone could plant and that's work. That's wrong. You violated Sabbath day. You could not knead dough on the Sabbath day. You could not make clay on the Sabbath day. You could not make mortar on the Sabbath day. What did Jesus do? He spit on the ground. He mixed some of the mud together. Jesus was working on the Sabbath day. So this is why they're so you know, intensely upset and they instantly discount there's no way Jesus could be from God because he's violated our traditional interpretation of the Sabbath day. Well, others you can see there, verse 16, disputed a little bit saying, but wait a minute, how can a man who's a sinner have done such signs? It was a clear miracle that it happened. Well, they, verse 17, going on, said to the blind man again, well, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes and he said, well, I think he's a prophet. So they say to the blind man who had been healed, the experience happened to you. What do you say about this man? Who do you say he is? What do you think about him? What's your perspective? He said, honestly, I think he's clearly a prophet, someone who's been sent from God, who spoke forth the word of God and can do the works of God. That's what a prophet did. Well, since the Jews, keep in mind, they don't want to believe or accept that Jesus could be from God. So what they're going to try and do now, watch this, is to dismiss the miracle altogether. They want to discredit the story. Verse 18 says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked the parents, saying, Is this your son whom you, and I'm sure there was an emphasis here, say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
And his parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So they want to discredit the story somehow. They have to, okay, we've got to do something. So maybe this is just a whole farce. This whole story is not even true. They're trying to say this was some guy born blind. And so they call the parents to try and validate it. And lo and behold, the parents say, listen, it is true. This is our son. We can validate that. And we fully can confirm for you he was born blind. In other words, uh uh-oh, a miracle did happen. There's no question now. There's the testimony that indeed this man's life was miraculously altered and has been changed. So his parents answer, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. Verse 21, but they go on, his parents, by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Hard to imagine he wouldn't tell them. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. Now the Holy Spirit gives us this insight. Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, the Savior, Messiah, that he would be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated. Therefore, that's the reason his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So I want you to follow what's happening here. His parents are willing to verify it was their son. His parents are willing to verify a miracle happened, but at that point, they're not willing to answer any further questions. Though they probably know the answer, they won't answer the next question. His parents refuse to answer. The Bible tells us here... Because honestly, they were fearful that if they answered correctly and truly, that they would create personal consequence that they'd have to face in their own lives. You see verse 22 there again, their great concern. What was it? Excommunication from the synagogue. It says that at this point, the religious leaders, the Jews, had agreed that if any person confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was the Jewish gathering place where they came together for worship and spiritual instruction like we do today, per se, in, in the church like we are this morning. Yet connection to the local synagogue was not just the building itself in the community that you gathered at for worship meetings. We have to understand in that culture particularly, connection to the local synagogue that was your whole way of life. Community revolved around your connection to the synagogue relationally and socially, and your acceptance at the synagogue impacted every other area of your life socially and culturally in that day. So, to be put out of the synagogue, understand, to be put out of the synagogue did not just mean you'd be unable to attend the worship meetings. It meant much, much more. It meant experiencing total rejection in the community. If you were excommunicated from the life of the synagogue, then basically you were related to as an outcast in the culture among the Jews. You were despised. You were ostracized. You would not be able to find work. You likely would not be able to buy food or merchandise from other people because they wouldn't sell it to you. They wouldn't deal with you. They'd have no interactions with you. You were considered an evil reprobate and you were basically despised and and banned relationally and socially in the society. So this was a very severe consequence. 
And a decision we read here had been made at this point by the Jewish religious leaders that any person who publicly confessed at this point in time that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, would be put out from the synagogue, a strong form of punishment, excommunication from the synagogue. And this was the risk or the fear we read of here that his parents were greatly concerned about and why they're kind of backpedaling and say, listen, we can say he's our son, he's healed, but we're not answering any further. We don't know how he was healed. Ask him, he can speak for himself. This is why they're distancing themselves. I want you to notice what's happening here. His parents choose to give in to this fear rather than do what's right and stand beside their son. His parents, because of fear of their own personal consequence, choose what's best for themselves and what they wanted, and they distance themselves from their son at this point. And they sort of pull away and leave him to stand alone without any support or help. And his own parents cared more about their social status and their own personal benefit, their desire for ease, their own security, than they did helping their own child or doing what was right before God. They selfishly choose, listen, what's best for themselves rather than doing what would be helpful or best for their own son. And can I say, sadly, that pattern still exists in our culture today. Because sadly, I have seen, you have witnessed, maybe even some of you experienced, there are times when parents choose what is best for themselves and they just let the effect fall upon their kids. And they're going to do what's best for themselves, for their own personal desires, their own personal preference, and they will just leave their children to deal with the results. This is what we want. It's what's best for us. And the kids will just have to deal with the results. That's a sad thing when that takes place. You know, if you know anyone or that's happened to you, Psalm 2710 says this, when my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. And what a great Bible promise for when those hurtful things happen. This man, as a direct result of the work of Jesus in his life, was rejected by his own immediate family. And sometimes that's a part of following Christ. Sometimes standing for Christ and being willing to, to, to walk with him and had his experience. Sometimes your own immediate family, some of us know that, your own immediate family may pull back from you, separate from you because of what this Jesus thing has somehow done in your life. Verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. In other words, tell the truth, God is witness. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. So this man knew what had happened in his life, that he had been powerfully changed, and that was not going to be denied. He wasn't going to change his story. He may not have all the answers theologically, but he knew what had happened to him. And he said, I don't have all the answers, but one thing I do know, however, so beautiful there, verse 25, one thing I do know, and that's this, that I was blind and now I see. Isn't that, again, a beautiful picture there, a beautiful picture of exactly what happens in our lives spiritually, of the salvation experience? Great hymn, so many of us know, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
And we may not be able to perfectly articulate everything that happens when we have an experience with Jesus Christ and we're saved and, and we have that wonderful encounter with the Lord. But the one thing, isn't it true, that we do know is there's this sense, I do know something, I see it now. I see it spiritually now. In a way, I, I see now. I was blind my whole life, but now I see it. I see God's love. I see the plan. I, I understand it makes sense to me and our eyes are open. I appreciate this man's willingness to stand boldly by not denying what Jesus did in his life and confessing it without fear and, and not being ashamed to confess what has happened in gratitude to the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. This man hit the target right on perfect point. He didn't deny Jesus when the pressure could have made him. Instead, he confessed Jesus, and Jesus says those who do such courageously will be honored. Well, look, it intensifies verse 26. So they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I love this, I told you already, <laughs> and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So I, mean, I read that, and what comes to my mind? Ooh, burn. You know, I, mean, like, I mean, this guy just is starting to tie them in in knots here they pressure him and he says the truth of what I'm going to tell you is not going to change he says I'm not going to change the truth it seems the problem is is you don't want to hear the truth he's saying I've already told you and then he goes so far as to probe a little bit and say or maybe it is that you honestly do want to hear the truth and in the depth of your heart you want to follow Jesus and you just don't have the courage to admit it yet and so he just continues the dialogue with them. Verse 28 says, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple. Well, that's a bad accusation, ain't it? You're a disciple of Jesus. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. Now, as they get more angry and antagonistic, I want you to notice with the Pharisees here, how sad to see these Pharisees are more concerned about clinging to and defending, if you would, their religious heritage more than they have any sincere openness to the present work of God happening inside their life. It's true, they say, God spoke to Moses. Well, look, that's true. God did speak to Moses. And Moses was a great spiritual leader and he pointed people to God. But now God was coming to them firsthand. God was directly trying to give them an experience in their own life through Jesus. Jesus was offering a firsthand experience with God. And yet so sad, they are so deeply, listen, so deeply rooted in their religious heritage, their religious upbringing their religious system that they're rejecting the work of God from happening inside of their own soul. This is something that human beings really must be very careful of where people can hold so tightly and so proudly to their lifelong religious ideas in such a way that you can refuse a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
because you are more dogmatically concerned with defending and holding on to your religious traditions and rituals maybe you were raised in. And I'll tell you something, perhaps one of the greatest hindrances, perhaps maybe even one of the greatest sins of humanity is when people zealously observe their religious practice and as a result never open their heart to a relationship and an experience with Jesus. I want to caution all of us here this morning. Never let your spiritual ideas or convictions keep you from encountering the work of Christ in your life personally. Because we can even do that even after we're saved. We have our own religious conviction, our spiritual ideas. Well, the way I was raised, I mean, this is what's right. And this, listen, what if your religious conviction is keeping you from the reality of an experience that Christ wants to do in your life personally. Be careful of that. These individuals were rejecting salvation from Jesus because they cared more about their religious system than they did the reality of an experience with God in their life through Jesus. Well, verse 30, the man answers and says to them, why this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began as unheard of, that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind, he says again, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So again, there's this untrained man, and he's tying these theological people in knots here by just simple clarity of human reasoning this is amazing somehow you don't know where jesus is from somehow you don't know whether he's from god or not but yet he opened my eyes miraculously he changed my life that's more than you've done for me as religious leaders he's transformed my whole life now since the beginning of uh, he says of the records of me has anybody ever opened the eyes of someone who was born blind do we know anyone else that's experiencing this kind of life change? If this man didn't have a connection to God, how could the power of God have been performed in my life the way in which it was? He's saying, let's admit the truth. Surely this work in my life is a sign to indicate something. And it was a sign to indicate something because one of the signs prophetically, had they just read their Bibles, the Old Testament scriptures clearly indicated one of the evident signs of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, when he came, is he would open the eyes of the blind. So this wasn't just a miracle just for this man to help him, though it did do that. It was indeed a sign from God to everyone who was witness to indicate there's the Messiah, he just fulfilled prophecy as God said that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. This is the Savior, the Son of God. Well, look how they respond to this dialogue. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely, I imagine they're gritting through their teeth now, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? Where's your seminary degree? Are you teaching us now, they say? And look what they did. They cast him out. That's a reference to the excommunication from the synagogue. What his parents were concerned about, he now, as we talked about, experiences excommunication from the synagogue and all that went along with that. I'm sure that was probably a very disheartening experience for that man. I'm sure it was a very concerning experience for him. Left him feeling hurt and abandoned, rejected. 
What would he do now? How was he going to get by? His decision to stand for Jesus, take note, cost him personally. His decision to stand for Jesus cost him personally. And let's be very honest, maybe not in this culture to that extent, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over this planet that when they choose to stand for Christ, in a sense, they're excommunicated from their society. They're considered dead by their families. And for you and I, this is part of the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, that your choice to stand for Jesus at times in your life, it should cost you personally sometimes. It will cost you personally in different ways, in different forms, but there's a cost to following Christ. It's a part of the badge of honor that sometimes we suffer to be faithful to Christ. And this man experienced great consequence as the result of that. Look what happens, verse 35. This is so beautiful as the story concludes. It says, Jesus heard that he'd been cast out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? So after this man goes through a series of disheartening rejections, his parents let him down. Now he's just got excommunicated from the synagogue. Here's this man, discouragement, abandonment, rejection. Jesus reaches out and pursues him and gives him further revelation in his life as the result of the rejection. Keep in mind, as I said, this man's never seen Jesus with his eyes, right? Remember the miracle? Jesus put the mud on his eyes. He said, go to the pool of Siloam, wash. He walks away. He comes back seeing but he's never seen Jesus yet. He's only heard Jesus' voice. So he doesn't know where to find Jesus. He's never seen him with his eyesight yet. But that's okay because Jesus always knows where to find us. And that's usually how the pattern works. And so Jesus now, notice the Holy Spirit tells us the unique hour and the timing when Jesus went and found this man and started ministering to him in a deeper way. Look at it there in the text. When Jesus heard that he had been cast out, then Jesus went and found him. This to me is beautiful. Jesus knowing what he had just gone through, the difficult circumstances, the challenges in his life. Jesus knowing that he had just been abandoned by the closest people in his life. Jesus knowing the hurt that he's feeling and the disappointment. Jesus knowing the concerns that this man has about his future. What's going to happen, man? What's the future hold? And, and no doubt the questions he still had inside of himself. Man, I, I don't get this. It seems like something so wonderful happened and now the world's falling apart on me? And Jesus, knowing that he's working through all these experiences at that point, that Jesus is filled with compassion and he goes and finds this man at that moment. And that's when he starts to minister to him more and to reveal more of himself to him. That's when Jesus speaks to him. And this man ends up having, listen, a deeper encounter with the Lord as the end result of all the hurt and rejection and mistreatment and disappointment that he went through in his own life. And see, though the world may reject people and cast them aside, those are the people Jesus goes and finds and that he ministers to. And for a lot of us in our lives... Jesus came to us like this man when we were at our lowest hour. This man's at his lowest hour and that's when Jesus came and found him when he was at his lowest point. For some of us here this morning, that was your experience. When you were at your lowest hour, your, your hardest point, that's when Jesus, and maybe when nobody else wanted anything to do with you, but Jesus still did. 
And he came and found you and he revealed himself to you and spoke into your life and gave you a deeper relationship with him. Perhaps today, maybe that's even why one of you are here this morning. You're at one of your lowest hours. And that's why you're here this morning because Jesus, who's still alive, wants to reach you in this hour. And I love that the Bible just tells us so clearly that Jesus found him. He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. And can I say spiritually, that is always the experience. We didn't find Jesus. Jesus found us. He revealed himself and drew us into our relationship. And look what Jesus does when he encounters him. He doesn't rehash all that's happened to him. See verse 35 there? He just addresses the most important issue. Where's your heart at spiritually? He says to the man, do you believe in the Son of God? Now, some of your translations render that son of man. Interpreters have different views on the translation. Let me just help you for sake of time. It's really not that vital of an issue there because both the son of man and the son of God are both messianic titles used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Savior and the Messiah. Jesus, in essence, is asking the same question regardless whether it was son of man or son of God. He's saying, do you believe in the Messiah that God is sending and prophesied about? He answers, verse 36, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So this man expresses his humble, genuine desire to want to understand spiritually. This is so, so beautiful. In humility, he recognizes something unique about Jesus. He calls him Lord. And listen to the guy's heart here. He says, please, just tell me who he is. If you'll just reveal the truth to me, I want to believe. I want to believe what is true. Just tell me what's true. Reveal to me what I need to know. And I fully intend to believe it and to respond to it. I look at this and what a beautiful picture of a humble, hungry heart that is seeking for truth. Wanting to know what's right so he can just respond to it. I think this is such a beautiful thing. He's saying, oh Lord, I'm just seeking. Tell me what I need to know so I can respond obediently. Just tell me. I just want to know. I want to obey. I want to believe. Perhaps he knew the truth of Jeremiah 29 where God said, if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. God always rewards a heart like that that wants to believe and wants to respond. So he says to him, Lord, who is he? Just tell me who the Messiah is. I'll believe. And Jesus said to him, imagine this, you have both seen him and it is he who is talking with you. Wow, what a powerful revelation about Jesus revealing to man that this is who he was standing face to face with. Jesus says to him, the person that is standing right in front of you face to face is the Messiah. You're looking into the eyes of the very Son of God, God's Savior. Nobody can ever say that Jesus didn't claim to be God. That Jesus didn't claim to be the Savior or the Son of God. He's telling this man and everyone who reads this, I am who I am. He answers the question very clearly. Listen to what he's saying to this man in the heart of it. He's saying to this man, Jesus saying, what you're looking for and who you're looking for is standing right before your eyes. Everything that you desire, the one that you need and who your heart is longing for could not be any closer to you than he is right in this moment. You have heard. And he says, right now, the one who you long for is talking to you. And maybe this morning, even in this room, you've been searching, you've been seeking, and perhaps the Lord would say, look, 
It's right before your eyes. This is me talking to you. It's me speaking to you. I'm right before you saying these very things. Well, upon revealing to him these things, hearing the word of the Lord, seeing who Jesus is, verse 38 says that he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Notice two things happen there. What? A spiritual confession and an outward expression of his heart. He makes his own personal confession of faith. He says, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. That's how salvation happens. Romans 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart God's raising from the dead, we will be saved. That's how salvation happens. We see Jesus for who he is. We confess with our mouth outwardly what we believe in our heart inwardly and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But notice also, he doesn't just make a confession. There's then this outward expression of his belief and his relationship with Jesus. He says, Lord, I believe. Don't miss it there, verse 38. And then he worshiped Jesus in response to having discovered who Jesus was for himself. And having had an encounter with Jesus, humility and gratitude overcomes this guy's heart. And he just falls down and starts worshiping Jesus. He doesn't need a Bible verse to tell him you're supposed to worship God. He doesn't have to wait to go to the church service to worship God. This is an individual who has had an encounter with the Lord and his life has been changed. And the automatic response is, I want to worship him. I want to adore him. I want to bow down to him and render something back in gratitude. He can't refrain from worshiping. This is a biblical example because one clear evidence of the outward fruit of someone having an encounter with Jesus Christ is it will result in worship of Jesus. Salvation by Jesus will always result in the worship of Jesus. These two just go hand in hand. It's the automatic response. You become an instant worshiper of Jesus because you want to honor the Lord because now he's, listen, he's not the Lord. Now he's your Lord. And there's this response that happens this morning if you're here today and you don't find in yourself an incentive or a desire to want to worship Jesus, I would just say you might want to ask yourself, why? Why is there kind of an apathy or disinterest in not wanting to worship the Lord? To express your love, your praise, your devotion, to sing to Him, to adore Him. It could be maybe you've just lost sense of the wonder of your salvation. And maybe like the psalmist, you need to say, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, what's happened to me. Or maybe you're here today and you've never had an experience with Jesus yet and that's what's missing. And you need to open your heart to him in salvation and confess him and see the response that comes as you experience his salvation. Well, verse 39, Jesus then said to them, for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be blind. So Jesus speaks of how, again, being the light of the world, he, like a judge, renders a determination. And judges render determination in regards to evaluating things. And notice, Jesus' life and how people respond to him renders a determination of their spiritual condition. Jesus says here, those who believe in him and follow him, their eyes will be opened spiritually. And he says, those who choose not to believe in him and follow him, 
that unbelief and rejection just blinds them further spiritually to the truth. How a person responds to Jesus determines their spiritual condition. It causes them to see more clearly or to be blinded. Well, they, hearing that the Pharisees who were with him heard those words and said to him, Are we blind also? Are you trying to say we're blind, they say? Are you trying to say that we can't see spiritually? Jesus answered in conclusion, If you were blind, you would have no sin. What's he saying? If you would admit that you didn't understand spiritually, if you would admit or if you had never clearly had the truth presented to you right before your eyes as you had, he says then as a result, you could claim ignorance and you would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting me. He then says in conclusion, but now you say we see. In other words, they were saying we can see spiritually we have an accurate perception of what's right in the things of God. He says, therefore, your sin remains. Since they confidently claim that they did see everything spiritually that was shown to them, but yet they still willfully rejected Jesus as God's Savior and the Son of God, now they were indeed responsible for their willful rejection of Jesus Christ. Can I say to all of us this morning, it is a dangerous thing to reject what God has revealed to you. When God reveals something to you, you will be personally accountable for that light of what God has now shown you. And once God reveals the truth to you on whatever the matter may be and he speaks to you and he shows you regarding your own sin or the condition of your soul that you still need to be saved, or even as he continues to speak to us and reveal things, and once God reveals to us something and it is evident what he's revealed, we now are personally accountable, and God's going to hold us accountable for what he has revealed to us. No one will ever be able to stand before God and claim ignorance. Never. No one. We are accountable. This morning, if there's some area between you and the Lord where maybe he's revealed to you something that you need to deal with or repent of, can I just encourage you? The Bible makes it very simple. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not going to be able to claim ignorance with God. If he's revealed something to you, respond to it.